We're going to continue uh, this morning in the book of Revelation. As I shared when we started this, uh, this book, it's either something you're excited about and you're blessed by or you're afraid of it. And the book of Revelation stirs up a lot of different things in people as they open it up. Because they know it's speaking of things to come. And whenever it's things to come, we get a little bit nervous about that because it's not here yet. But today we're going to continue our journey through the seven letters to the seven churches. Today it's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It's the church in Sardis. And so turn in your Bibles there. Sardis has been referred to, and some of the headings in your Bible might have Sardis, the dead church. Sardis is the fifth of these seven churches in the list. And on slide two, we have a map here. You can see the journey that we've been on so far from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira, and now we're in Sardis. And Sardis was located about 30 miles southeast of the city of Thyatira. We started these seven letters to the seven churches with the church at Ephesus, the church that had left its first love. We moved on to the church in Smyrna, the persecuted church. And then it was the church at Pergamos, and it's been referred to as the compromising church. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the church at Thyatira, the corrupt church. And then today, the church at Sardis, the dead church. When I read those things and I consider Calvary Chapel Fellowship here in Winston-Salem, I don't really want to be any one of those churches. In the sense of what is being said against it. And I don't even want it to be my life as a Christian. That these things would be said of me. But as we look at these seven letters, we have to consider, we can't even stand behind the church as a whole. We have to consider ourselves individually as a Christian. The first three churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, they all fall under what is referred to as the ancient period in church history. That was a period of almost 600 years. And then the church at Thyatira. We looked at that and this falls under church history in the time that is referred to as the medieval period, which covers almost a thousand years of church history. And then we come to the last three churches of these seven, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And all of these fall under the heading of the modern period in church history. It actually begins with the Reformation that took place in 1517. 
It was during this last period, or it is during this last period, that Protestantism and Catholicism together became the great divide within the church. False doctrines were taken on by the Catholic Church. They added church tradition to their list of things that was their church dogma, what the church should follow. And it really didn't follow scripture. And so we ourselves are living, and as I've shared that these churches, they didn't just end, but they continue even on, that we're living ourselves in this period of church history where we are seeing these things in the days we live in. We know that the next church, the church at Philadelphia, is the faithful church. That's the one I'd like to be. The faithful church. We're going to finish with the church at Laodicea. The lukewarm church. The church that is the compromising church. That's the church that could be that last day's church. And maybe we're there now. Maybe we're in that days of the church at Laodicea. Remember that all of these churches in John's day were literal churches that were experiencing these things. But as we look at church history in a panoramic view, we know that these things also cover and they parallel a lot. And that's why as an individual church, as an individual Christian, I can put myself up against these seven letters and to be able to examine myself and be able to examine this church in light of the Word of God. History tells us that this church in Sardis, at the time of John's writing of these letters, we know that this church that was there, that had been planted in the city of Sardis, that the city itself was in a state of decline. This was a city that was a renowned city. It was a, uh, in the day, it was very, a strategic city. It was a very wealthy city in the day. And there was much that a person living in this city could be proud of. There had a lot going on, but it was a declining city by the time that John was writing this letter to it. Sardis, or Sardis is another way that it's pronounced, was the capital city of the area of West Asia Minor called Lydia in its history. And it was under Roman rule. At the time. As a matter of fact, ancient Sardis was the capital of the whole region of Lydia at the time. I think I have a, a map there. You can see it where that encompassed that at one time. This city or this area, we could even say, had great fame. It was important in history, it was strategic in the Roman Empire. Lydia was this ancient city that actually started around 1200 B.C. and lasted until 547 B.C. 
It was called the royal capital of Lydia. This whole area of Lydia was known to have fertile fields, especially in the city of Sardis. The land was rich in horses that gave good wine. They harvested saffron in this area. Zinc and other metals and gold was very much a part of the riches that came out of this area. Sardis was a political, it was a cultural center for Asia Minor. Until the death of King Croesus by the Persians in 547 BC, this whole region was very much a very cultural and political center. It stood at the foot of Mount Tamalus. It had a fortress there that was one of the built uh, this triple thick walled city that was up on this mount. It was a very strategic city, very fortified city. And the people that lived in it probably had a lot of pride within the city there in Sardis. Actually, the first gold and silver coins were minted in the 6th century under King Croesus. I, I have a, a picture here of that. You can see the, the terracotta pot there. You can see one of the coins there, gold coins that was stamped. That was first made in this city. Uh, archaeologists found 30 of those coins that were in that terracotta pot. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't really until 1958 that archaeologists began to unearth some of the things that you see in Sardis today. It was all under dirt. It was all underground. And they began to, they found the location of this ancient city of Sardis. I have a few pictures I want to show you. Um, you can go to the next. There's an aerial shot of what is above ground to this day. An aerial shot of, of ancient Sardis. Uh, the next four pictures, and you can go through, there's this Jewish synagogue of Sardis. It's actually the largest Jewish temple that's ever been found. It actually was 160 feet by 300 feet long. You can go to the next photo. There's a walking inside of it. Uh, another, another picture. Another picture inside of this uh, synagogue, and then the next one is really just the mosaic flooring that is still there today. Incredible work of art, if you want to say this Jewish synagogue that was in this city. There were two gymnasiums, or, or a, a large, excuse me, gymnasium and a bathhouse that was also, uh, the remains of that are there today. Uh, this was uh, just a, an architectural city like many of the ones actually all of these cities that are in the seven letters they have this kind of architecture uh, we have another couple uh, photos here go to the next one there's the Acropolis on uh, Mount Tamales. Uh there's the triple thick wall that surrounded this temple or, or excuse me this uh, mountain top it was a fortified city, highly fortified. 
And I say all of that because all of these things have a significance in the life of the church. Just like our culture and our city and where we live, and if you've lived in other parts of the world, it has an effect upon people. Here this Christian church had been planted there in this city of Sardis. We know that there was also the temple of Sibella. It's also known as Artemis. That's what remains of it today. This, uh, this uh, magnificent, really, uh, temple that was there uh, was an incredible sight to see. That's, but that's all that remains of it today. And so with that said, and with the, the understanding that this uh, Christian church was planted in this culture, planted in this city, the Christians were living in a city that was beginning to fade, a city that was beginning. And I think it's interesting that the letter that the Lord is writing to the church at Sardis was to warn them about becoming dead. Let's read the letter together in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter to Sardis is a letter to you and I. And quite often we want to stand behind history. We want to stand behind a past church and say that that really doesn't apply to us. And we need to remember that God's word is relevant for us today. We need to look at the church at Sardis. We need to look at ourselves individually this morning. In verse 1, we read, and to the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. My prayer is that's not me. My prayer is that, that that's not you or this church. How many of you are dependent upon the Spirit of God in your life? I know I am. 
I'm dependent upon His Holy Spirit. It's interesting that he's writing to a, a church that is dying, a church that is dead and dying. And he makes reference, going back to chapter 1, like he does in each one of these letters in verse 4. Look what it says in chapter 1. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits of God. In the book of Revelation in chapter 4, we'll get there, we read in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This is in that heavenly scene of chapter 4. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. And then it tells us what those seven lamps of fire are, which are the seven spirits of God. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. And again, he says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We know that these seven uh, spirits of God, we can take it back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse uh, 1 and 2, we read this. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, speaking about Jesus Christ who would come. The Spirit of the Lord is the first one. Do you see that? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge in the, and of the fear of the Lord. How many of you need that? How many of us need that in, upon our lives? We need God's spirit. You see, the remedy for a dead and dying church is God's Holy Spirit. We need to have His Spirit upon our lives individually. We need to have it in the leadership of our church. We need to have it in our presence, God's Spirit. Jesus may be saying to this church at Sardis that He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit to give to them, to give to you. He might be saying to the church at Sardis, he might be saying it to this church, I have what you need. I have my Holy Spirit to give you what you need. To bring you out of your deadness. To bring you back to life. You need my Spirit in your midst. You need my Spirit upon you. Pastor Chuck Smith, who was the founding pastor of the Calvary Chapel movement, 
He would often say that one of the greatest needs in the church was having an understanding of the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit. I think it's important for us to search out the work of the Holy Spirit in God's Word. We need to understand that the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we possess as Christians, they come from the Holy Spirit. We need to be dependent upon it for our power to say no to sin. We need to not look at the Holy Spirit of God as just some power or some entity out there. We need to realize that it's part of that triune Godhead, a necessary part of the Godhead that we need in our lives. We've already learned that the seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers, we might say the seven pastors of these seven churches. That's who these letters are being addressed to. It's being addressed to me. It's being addressed to every pastor that stands in front of his congregation. We're responsible. I'm responsible. And what's interesting is that Jesus refers to the seven spirits of God to a church that is dead. What does a church look like that's dead? It's sometimes easy to get the wrong impression about what a dead church looks like. Sometimes I think, uh, we think that an active church and a busy church is a church that's alive. It's on fire. They've got a lot of programs and a lot of Bible studies going on. Not that those are bad, but there's a lot going on Sometimes even within a church. They could even have a reputation that they're alive. Even the Calvary Chapel movement has had a history of being a movement that brought some life. That put the Holy Spirit as, a, as, a, as something significant within the church the need for the Holy Spirit within our lives and within the church. Not the only church that's done that. A busy church. A church full of committees. A lot going on. Yet they're dead in spirit. Yet they're dead in their hearts. You see, you could be doing all the right things, going through all the right motions as a Christian, and you can still be dying spiritually. One of the foundation verses for the Calvary Chapel movement from Pastor Chuck was Zechariah 4.6. Do you know that verse? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
In other words, any work of God that is going to amount to anything, that is going to bring forth any fruit, that is going to be powerful in any way, it has to come from the Spirit of God. It's not a work of man's efforts. How many works today in the church are a work of man's hands? A work of man's effort and not the work of the Holy Spirit. I think there's a lot more. My prayer is that we won't be that way. That we're not that way. But I have to say that I believe for our church I want to see more of the Holy Spirit working in your lives and in my lives, my life in this church. The church needs spirit-filled leaders. The church needs spirit-filled Sunday school teachers. The church needs spirit-filled ushers, deacons, people that are serving Spirit-filled men and women of God. If we want to represent the Lord, if we want to be powerful in what's taking place in this place, it's got to be a work of God's Holy Spirit. It can't be a work of our ideas and our ingenuity and our, you know, trying to put this thing together, making the wheel turn. It can't be that. Remember in Acts chapter 6 when the early church, when they, they sought out seven men from their fellowship? And what they were instructed to do is to seek out seven men out of your church. And these men need to be men of good reputation. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Seven spirits of God. They, they need God's Spirit to operate, to function in the capacity of a deacon, in the capacity of a servant within the church. In Acts chapter 11, verse 24, Stephen was one of those men. And we read of him that he was a, a good man that was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And we're told that a great many people were added to the Lord. That's what follows it. You see, when the Holy Spirit is working through the people in the church, and even as Kyle prayed, Lord, would you add to the church daily those that are being saved? Would you do the work? Would you add to this church? It's not a work of our hands. It's not an effort. We make effort. For the Lord's sake, but Lord, help me that I'm doing it in the power of your name and in, your, in the power of your Holy Spirit. That's the kind of leadership that we need in the church today, in this church. Men and women that are full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. 
I think one of the biggest problems for the church at Sardis was that it was being led by men. Instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, that is a sure way that a church is eventually going to die. It's a, a, eventually, it's just going to fade out. One of the things that we've seen in our time is denominationalism. We've seen church movements, denominationalism. And some of those denominations have a name. They boast in the name. They put a lot of stock in the name of their denomination. And there's a lot of Christians that stand behind those denominations. Mainline denominations within the church. The problem is you don't see those in scripture, do you? You don't see any denominational names. You don't see Calvary Chapel Fellowship or Calvary Chapel in the Bible. What you do see in the Bible is a church, and the church is not the walls, it's you and I. A church that either knows Christ or doesn't know Christ. That's what you see. That's what God sees. He sees people. He sees the church. He doesn't see the denominations, the church movement. Though he knows they're there, and though he works within them, many times they're a work of man's effort. Man's ingenuity. People putting too much stock in the name than they are about what's going on inside of the walls. You see, God's estimation of a church is not always man's estimation. A denomination, a movement, an individual's heart, we, we quite often, we give a different kind of a, we look at it and we go, God, God's moving there. God's doing something in our midst. That whole movement has a real reputation. For doing a lot of good things. We often look at the inner workings of a church. Instead of looking at really what's going on in the people individually. You have a name. You have a reputation. That you're alive. Jesus says. But you're dead. The way people judge a church. The way they judge it is not how God will judge it. He doesn't look at the name. He doesn't look at the movement. I lived in Wales. My family, we lived in Wales for six years. And we saw some of the most beautiful church buildings. That were all over the landscape of the UK. Beautiful stone buildings with stained glass windows. 
beautiful setting that they're setting in. But when you look at the church as you drive by, there's no one in it. They're just historical buildings. Beautiful to look at, but nothing inside. No one in them. As a matter of fact, at the time that we lived there, the, the government doesn't allow you to do much with these buildings. They, they try to upkeep them just for the sake of having these beautiful buildings littering the countryside. It costs them a lot of money to try and upkeep them. There was a thousand church buildings at the time that were falling into disrepair. A nation that had a heritage that we glean from a whole nation, the United Kingdom, that we get a lot of our heritage, Christian heritage from, is a nation as well as parts, much of Europe, that is dying, that's dead. And it's not to say that about all. It's just simply to say that what we gleaned from all of that heritage has become dead, it's dying. God's perspective is that he sees people, not buildings. What are some of the things that can appear to make a church look alive? Here's just a few of them. One, you have a name, and I've already mentioned that. You put stock in the fact that you have a name. And to be honest with you, I quite often look at Calvary Chapel and think, you know what, I'm really, I'm happy to be a part of the Calvary Chapel movement of churches. But that does not mean that Calvary Chapel cannot become dead. And it doesn't mean that an individual Calvary Chapel could not become dead. Or is dead. Sound doctrine. There's a lot of churches out there that are very sound theologically. Good doctrine. They teach the Bible. They do all the things that we do in church, yet they can still be a dead church. You see, just teaching the Bible is not the evidence that you're a church that's alive. There are churches that teach the Bible, but they're really the spirit is not part of that work. And they're dead. Just like the spirit without truth is immaturity, so truth without the spirit is dead. We need to mix the truth of God's Word with the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's what makes it alive. That's what makes it powerful. In any work that we do, whether you're teaching, whether you're serving, whatever you're doing within the church, if people walk in this door and they, and these people are spirit-filled Christians, you can sense the love of God coming out of their life. You can sense their faith in just talking to them. Their zeal for the things of the Lord. 
is evident. How about church buildings and bank accounts in America? The amount of mega churches and churches that have these facilities and big bank accounts. Is that evidence that that church is alive? Not necessarily. God doesn't judge it by the building nor the bank account. That's man's judgment of what's alive. I think we have a danger here in America. And the danger is we've been given so much. We're spoiled. We have so much in this nation as a church. I've been to various countries in my time as a Christian, and there is no place like America when it comes to being spoiled as Christians. We have more Christian radio and stuff available to us. We have all the bells and whistles that you could ask for. And yet we don't always see our accountability for that. We're accountable to God with what he has given to us. We're accountable that God gave us this building, church. Those of you that know the story, we're accountable with what God has given to us. I think sometimes the churches and people are more concerned about their name than they are about their character. The word alive here speaks about the inner life of a Christian. It, it, it's, it's not just what's seemingly looking alive in the building, but what about the individual hearts? within the church as we look at our own hearts even this morning don't ever be deceived into thinking that your work or your activities or if the things that go on in this building like this are what make us alive As a matter of fact, when it comes to buildings and edifices and, and all those things, if you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 11, verse 4, you can read about the Babylonians where they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that can stand behind their buildings and their edifice. They can stand behind the things that they think makes them look great and alive. And yet they're not. Some of the things that we need to remember is that Jesus is able to look beyond the outward works that appear to be alive, but in reality they're dying. He can see that. 
I know your works. Remember that the church at Ephesus, they had many good works. The list was good. The commendation was good. Yet they had left their first love. How concerned was God about that? To get away from your first love. And they were called to repent of that. And go back and do the first works. Pergamos. We're told they were holding fast to his name. And they weren't denying the faith. But they were compromising. Thyatira had the longest list of all the commendations of things that they were doing, but were told they were corrupt. And now Sardis, you have a name. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. To me, these things are scary because they get down to the very heart of the issue. Verse 2, Jesus goes on to say, in light of that, Christians, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that, that are ready to die. This is the scary, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Being watchful, Christians, continually watching means to be alert. Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray, didn't he? And history tells us of this city of Sardis that it was captured twice by its enemy. And on both occasions, it was because they weren't watching. In 549 BC, a Midian soldier scared, scaled the parapet while the guards slept. In 214 BC, it was taken by Antichus the Great while soldiers slipped over the wall while the sentries were carelessly not watching. They had this wall, they had this citadel that protected their city, yet they weren't watching and they weren't ready. You see, we need to, as Christians, we need to stay in the Word of God and we need to stay in prayer. We need to be watchful. We need to know what's going on around us with, with the things that we're even reading this morning. The warning signs. The things to be watching for in our church and in our own hearts. He says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. As I already said, we can't do any of this in our own strength, can we? I can't do anything. I can't get up here and teach. You can't teach any of our children or teach in any capacity. You can't do it in your own strength. At least it won't be powerful. It won't really do what it's intended to do. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt your flesh wanting to draw back from ministry? In other words, have you ever felt like giving it up? 
Have you ever been in a place in your walk where you were really zealous, maybe doing some things for the Lord and, and really sensing God's spirit in, upon you and, in your, and all of a sudden, kind of get burnt out on that. I, I, I don't have the desire like I used to to do those things. That's a sure sign that things are dying. That things are ready to die. And maybe death hasn't come yet. But it's coming. Strengthen the things which remain. That are ready to die. Have you ever felt spiritually dry? Like you were disconnected from the church? Disconnected from the other Christians in the church. You see, sometimes Christians, they start feeling this way inside. They start thinking that there's something wrong with the church. There's something really wrong with this pastor. I just don't get fed from him anymore. I used to, but it doesn't matter. he doesn't minister to me anymore. I feel disconnected. And really what the disconnect is, you've disconnected from the vine. You've moved away from the vine. You've moved away from the source where you got your power and zeal and excitement to do anything for the Lord. You stopped asking God for a fresh infilling in your life. We need it continually, don't we? Every single day. God, I need your spirit today. There is a danger of moving from doing our ministry in the joy of the Lord to doing ministry in the strength and the efforts of our flesh. Been doing this a long time. And now I just do it out of routine. Now I just do what I do because that's what I should be doing. But the part of the joy, the zeal to do those things is missing. Jesus says, he says, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And Jesus wasn't telling them that they had no works, was he? He says, it's not that you have no works, but your works do not measure up to God's standard. You see, you're only doing it because that's what you're supposed to do. And God doesn't want us to operate that way. So what is the remedy? Look at verse 3. Remember therefore. So now he gets to a part in this letter. So remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. There's the remedy. Remember how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. 
Therefore, if you will not watch, he says it again about watching, I will come upon you like, come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. First, Jesus says, remember how you received and how you heard the word of God. And hold fast to those things that you know to be true. Hold fast to them and repent of those things that you have gotten away from. The things that you once came to know to be true and right in the way that you should walk. Then repent of those things and come back to the things that you have gotten away from. I used to pray a lot. I used to read and type. I used to serve. I used to whatever it is. I used to tell people about Jesus Christ. Paul commended the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The word of God. Let it have its way. Whether it hurts or whether it's just built, whatever it's doing, let it have its way. I think any church or Christian who is living without watching is in danger of being caught unexpected. Just like a thief in the night. You know what that would look like? Thieves come at nighttime. They come when they can hide and get in. Remember the parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgin. Five were ready, and five were not. And I believe that this warning to Sardis is not necessarily connected here to the rapture, which I believe in, but really to an, a, a warning of impending judgment that will come. It will come upon you if you do not repent. History tells us that the city of Sardis, that it continued to decline. And in 1402 AD, a Mongol warlord, Tamir, also known as Tamerlan, utterly destroyed the city and it was never rebuilt again. It's also a warning that the church today, that judgment will come. Judgment will come. Remember that whole nations and churches and denominations and church leaders will one day be judged. Whole nations, God's gonna judge a whole nation for what they've done with him. He'll judge a whole denomination churches. He'll judge church leaders, myself included. One day they will stand before him as judge.
Jesus says, you have a few names, and this is the bright, this is the part we go, well, thank you, Lord. You, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see, God always has his people, doesn't he? He always has his remnant. He always has, and notice it says a few. It doesn't say a lot. There's a few of you that have not defiled your garments. And even though this church as a whole was dying spiritually, we see that God still acknowledges the faithful, the faithful few. He, he doesn't go unnoticed. If you're in a church and, it, and it's a dying church and you're being faithful to the Lord, God sees that. He sees the few. He's glorified with the few. And the rest can be dying. And we also need to know that God is never fooled by religious activities and dead works. But he'll see the walking faithful. He won't be fooled by those that are saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and cast out demons in your name and do these wonderful works in your name? Jesus says that the few are going to walk with me in white. Speaks of that righteousness that has been given to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you're going to walk worthy. Not because you're worthy, because He's worthy. Because He's given His righteousness to you. And that's a promise to you and I. It's a promise to the few. And then look what He says in verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will, I like this, I will not Underline that, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess, underline that, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Is there a condition for those who will be clothed in white garments? Jesus says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I've shared with you after each one of these letters what I believe an overcomer is. It's in 1 John 5, 5. He who overcomes the world, who is he? They're asking the question, who is he who overcomes the world? That's the question. But he who believes that Jesus is the Christ, who is an overcomer? Those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. Who are the ones that are going to walk in white? Those who have had Jesus' righteousness given to you. You're an overcomer because of that. And Jesus says, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. 
In the book of Revelation, and we're drawing to an end here, in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, verse 8, I want to share with you just a few verses on this book of life. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. You know who he's talking about in that context? The Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth during the tribulation period, during this time, will worship the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundations of the world. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life. You have to underline that word not. They're not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. It has to do with where your name is written. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, this is at the great white throne judgment. John sees another vision. It says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. These, I believe, are unbelievers. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is at the great white throne judgment. And the books, that's plural, were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And I believe that that book contains the redeemed, those whose names have been written into the book of life. And we're told that the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books, plural, which what is, the, what is being written about the unbeliever in the books? Well, their name is not in the Lamb's book of life, but it is in the books. Some believe that every soul that comes into this world is written in the books. Maybe there's a list of all those failures and those things that would separate a man from God written in the books. But if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Amen? In Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, this is after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Tribulation has already happened seven years. Thousand-year millennial reign has already happened. And then we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 7. But there shall be by no means enter into it. Let's talk about the New Jerusalem. Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in what? The Lamb's book of life. You have a promise, church, that if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're going to walk in white garments. You're, you can have the confidence that your name will never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. 
I believe when the Lord writes it in the book, it's there. Your name has been pinned down if you know him as Lord and Savior in the Lamb's book of life. That's the redeemed. Jesus closes like he does in all of these letters with he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. My prayer is that we go out today and we go about this week, we consider our own hearts. We consider where we're at. Do I see myself as dying? Do I see myself as dead? Do I see this church as alive? Or is it a dying church? The only way this church will be alive is if we have alive Christians in it. If there are only just a few, it'll see God's faithful to his church. But you want to be one of those that's not dying, spiritually I'm talking about. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's all stand and Let's have Kyle come up and close us in a song. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, come up and see me. If you're here and you need prayer for anything, come up and see me. We can pray together. And uh, let's close in prayer. And Father, I thank you for this next letter uh, that we have read, Lord, the warning and the promise that we read in this letter applies to us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak, Lord, even beyond this time right now, but speak to us this week. Reveal to us our hearts. Let us be watching and ready. Let us return to our first love. Let us become dependent once again on your Holy Spirit and the work of your Spirit in our life. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.